0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsodixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is the Honorable James E. Baker, Director of the Syracuse University Institute for Security Policy and Law professor of law at Syracuse University College of Law, and a professor at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. We will discuss his book, The Centaur's Dilemma, National Security Law for the Coming AI Revolution, which is published by the Brookings Institution Press. So welcome to the show, Jamie.
1: Uh, Thank you very much, Brian. It's a delight to be here.
0: I'm really happy to have you on, and I'm happy that uh, I believe it was Tom set up this, this interview.
1: Tom O'Dell, wonderful uh, member of our team uh, and and a great scholar.
0: So, Jamie, I was wondering if you could start this conversation by talking about the centaur metaphor that you use for thinking about artificial intelligence. Why do you think that's a a helpful metaphor?
1: Fair question. Uh, Good question. Uh, I chose the centaur and the centaur's dilemma uh, as the title of the book, um, because when the Department of Defense, which is pushing AI work in on the government side, most AI work is occurring in industry and occurring in academia, but within the government, it's the Department of Defense that in large measure is driving uh, uh, the government's look at AI. Um, and they talk about human-machine teaming, and when they talk about human machine teaming, they refer to a centaur model. Um, and the centaur, of course, is not half horse and half man; it's half machine and half man. Hence, the centaur. Uh, but the centaur's dilemma, and notice that it's a possessive dilemma, not a plural, uh, not plural centaurs, but possessive centaur. Um, the centaur's dilemma is that with artificial intelligence, uh, one of the I've, I found that most, many of the ethical issues and challenges of artificial intelligence is how to maximize the benefit of the capacity of working at machine speed and doing things that only algorithms and artificial intelligence can do, but how to do that without losing human control. And the dilemma is, in each context, how much human control do you assert and how much machine independence do you permit? In one of the dilemmas is if you assert too much human control, you lose the benefit and the advantage of the machine capacity. On the other hand, if you don't assert enough human control, you may not have control of the outcome or understand what has occurred. So that's a fundamental dilemma that occurs over and over again when we're talking about artificial intelligence. I can give you a few examples if you'd like. The most dramatic, of course, which is not the most important because it's not the uh, not the most imminent. And um, but uh, with the area of autonomous weapon systems, lethal autonomous weapon systems, there, of course, the question is: uh, to what extent will you allow the weapon system to make firing decisions, targeting decisions, without an affirmative human? decision in place. Um, one thing that's always important to note, though, with the centaur's dilemma, is humans are always involved. There's this notion that, you know, artificial intelligence is operating on its own, and we're, we're spectators, and you know, we'll just sit back and see what the algorithm does, um, and and that that is not a, a the way to look at it. The way to look at it is always to ask, where is the human? Where's the human involved in the loop? And Um, humans are always in control. After all, they're the ones who wrote the code, wrote the software, designed the hardware. The question is, where are we going to stick them into that loop and how much control will they exercise? It's the centaur's dilemma, possessive, because what I'm trying to emphasize here is that we have a choice. We have a choice. We can guide the outcome here. We can sit back and say, oh, no, where is this all going? Or we can help guide it to preferred and beneficial outcomes rather than uh, uncontrolled outcomes or unclear outcomes. When I started out out in this field, Um, I was looking for definitions of artificial intelligence. And I came to realize there are 374,000 different definitions. And the one I have uh, landed on uh, in terms of uh, (laughs) user-friendly, and also I think quite accurate, is the one that the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence has used. Um, And here is their definition. AI is not a single piece of hardware or software, but rather a constellation of technologies that give a computer system the ability to solve problems and perform human tasks that would otherwise require human intelligence. Now, let me tell you why I like that definition. First, um, it notes that it's a constellation of technologies. And so if you're sitting there thinking we're talking about shopping algorithms and I'm sitting here thinking we're talking about predictive maintenance and logistics, um, there may be a good reason why we're both... Uh, we're confused is because we're talking about a constellation of technologies. Um, it's also important because a lot of people try to fix the AI challenge with a single principle. So, um, Google has principles, the Director of National Intelligence has principles, DOD has principles, principles like equity or transparency. And the fact of the matter is, principles are good for starting the conversation, but You can't end the conversation there because how the principle applies will depend on the specific context in which you're talking about, which technology you're talking about and in what specific context. So we're talking about a constellation of technologies and what's informed that constellation of technology, algorithms, data, data analytics, cloud computing, computational speed, and uh, most importantly, in the recent development of AI uh, machine learning and in that category we have a particular kind of machine learning called deep learning so that's the one thing another thing I like about the definition is they it's a constellation of technologies that gives a computer system the ability to solve problems and perform human tasks fair enough that would otherwise require human intelligence it doesn't make the mistake of of leading us to believe that artificial intelligence is human intelligence. It's machines doing things that humans have programmed them to do, but not with human intelligence, but in place of human intelligence. And that's an important point because it gets us off of the anthropomorphization of AI uh, and away from contemplating that it's all about robotics and singularity and all those things. um, it's about algorithms, data, and making connections in data that people can't see or couldn't see in the timeline presented. So there we have a definition. Now we can put it to use.
0: <laughs> so so in, in light of that definition, I wonder if you could just briefly touch on in practical terms what historically it meant to talk about artificial intelligence, what it means today, and what you or what other people think it might mean in the future.
1: Um, fair enough. Uh, so artificial intelligence, uh, generally, when people talk about it and try and put it in historical context, uh, they run back to Alan Turing, uh, the uh, Cambridge um, uh, mathematician, computer scientist, uh, poly, uh He had his hand in so many different things, and he was part of the Bletchley Park uh, Project, the Codebreaker, among other things. And he is the one who first started talking about how uh, uh, machines could could have intelligence. Uh, The term artificial intelligence uh, is associated with, in the first instance, a professor at Dartmouth named McCarthy, um, who held a conference at Dartmouth in 1956 where he gathered uh, 10 or so professors together and they said they were going to solve the problem of artificial intelligence. Um, and of course, that's a, a, a wonderful example of academic optimism um, because here we are. But um, there then, uh, for reasons that um, I won't go into here and it's not, I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert in any event, for um, essentially from the period that Uh, Alan Turing uh, first wrote his paper uh, about computational machines and thinking uh, to um, present day, Uh, commentators, scholars, technologists have talked about uh, periods of AI winter where there were starts, spurts and starts, and then pauses in the original optimism and the promise of AI uh, turned out not to come to fruition um, and as you know, because you've looked at the book, uh, and thank you for doing that, um, I pose at the beginning of the book the question, um, are we in an AI spring or is this summer? And if it's summer, how hot will it get? <laughs> uh, because um, for all, all that constellation of technologies uh, we were just talking about, they've come together in a synergistic manner now uh, to move us well beyond winter into spring And in my view, into the summer of artificial intelligence. When when we talk about artificial intelligence, um, commentators like to talk about sort of three stages of artificial intelligence. Uh, One is narrow artificial intelligence, which is an artificial intelligence capacity that performs a single task. And it performs it well or it doesn't perform it, it, it well, but it does one thing. And it's been programmed to do one thing. There's a category of artificial intelligence called artificial general intelligence, which is a notional future time when uh, an artificial intelligence capacity will be able to switch fluidly from one task to another, Um, write its own code, rewrite its code, um, and and switch seamlessly from task to task. Uh, That's referred to as artificial general intelligence. And then uh, some people, and this is uh, both science fiction types, uh, but also uh, what we call AI philosophers, uh, people like Nick Bostrom at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford, they talk about superintelligence or super artificial intelligence, which is a, uh, some would say, fictional, notional, um, who knows, time when machines become smarter than humans. Um, and uh, can outperform humans in, in, in multiple tasks. And then you get into this issue of what happens then, and you get into the Nick Bostrom uh, paperclip optimizer. Now, one of the things I say in my book, and I think you know I say this in my book, which is why you're baiting me down this path, is um, AI has so much promise to do good But also risk of there's a number of risks that come with AI uh, in terms of foreign policy, national security, uh, how authoritarian regimes use AI. And as I say in the book, um, we should spend less time worrying about super intelligence and more time worrying about current events, because we'll have plenty of opportunity to do ourselves in first uh, before we get to all that, if we do get to all that. With respect to all that, I see sort of three camps. Uh, the three camps, I've again, none of this is, you know, people probably, much like AI, it's fluid, but I see three camps. One is the uh, stay calm and carry on camp, um, which is, you know, industry, most academics, uh, the government is, which is, we're, we can manage this and we'll have preferred outcomes. There's the fork in the road camp. Which might be uh, characterized by Stephen Hawking's uh, Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk. Uh, that, and Stephen Hawking uh, famously said before he passed away uh, that AI uh, may, and I'm going to paraphrase, may be um, the the greatest invention uh, for man, or it may be the worst. We don't know yet. It depends which way it forks. Um, and then there's the uh, James Bastrom Camp, who he wrote a book called Our Last Invention, and it was our last invention because it ended up being the invention that then led to the demise of humans, and uh, James Barat is his name, um, and I think the, uh, whether he really believes that will happen or he's trying to provoke folks to try and regulate and manage this better is, is a, a, a one question. Uh, but that's that's the um, end of the world camp. The, uh, now, there are different people. Like some people think that's going to be a positive outcome. Other people think it's going to be a negative outcome. Nick Brostrom has the paperclip optimizer to try and explain how uh, even a neutral, favorable thing could end up having a negative outcome. Um, but one of, my, one of the purposes of my book uh, is to move us out of the future in science fiction phase and into the present day phase um, because we're going to live with the results of what we do now for many years to come in how we choose or not choose to regulate artificial intelligence design in the national security space and in other spaces will um, define uh, much of our century. And if we get it wrong at the outset, um, We may be able to correct it, but we may not. And um, we, we ought to take purposeful steps and not just sit back and watch. So when we think about
0: managing risks associated with artificial intelligence, I think it's common for people to think about how to make sure that humans can exert appropriate control over machines. I wonder if there is kind of a corollary like circumstances where maybe we're the problem, not the machines?
1: Well, uh, we are always the problem um, because uh, we we write the code. Uh, we, we select the data uh, on which the algorithm is trained. Um, so it, the, the question is, I, I know this may not be quite where you wanted the question to go, but um, we're we control our own destiny here, right? And um, one question to ask is where does risk come from when we talk about AI risk? And and first, we should also talk about AI benefits in a moment as well, because uh, there's no question that I mean one reason this is moving along and we're we're in what I call the coming AI revolution, and I'm I'm hardly alone in, in saying that is because. Um, there's many beneficial uses for this constellation of technologies. And um, so, but first we'll talk about the risks. Um, So one of the risks I I place the risks in sort of three categories or more in my chapter, I have more, more categories than that. But um, when we're talking just about uh, machine risk, as opposed to the risk of authoritarian authoritarian regimes using it to solidify power and that sort of thing. But we're talking about um, operating at machine speed, right? So one of the things uh, that um, algorithms can do in computational capacity gives them the power to do is they can make connections in data and find patterns in data and act upon that, those patterns um, and connections uh, at machine speed, which is to say instantaneously, they can do this in cyberspace. They can do this uh, while while trading stocks and doing things like that. So one of the risks is when things operate at machine speed, um, the humans even either have to program in preferred outcomes ahead of time, intervene to stop the machine to make a human choice, or sit back and see what happens. Um, So that's one of the risks. Now, again, The human is the person who made the choice, a human made the choice to give the machine the capacity to operate with or without human control in that instance. Where else does risk come in? Risk comes in in the different forms of bias that AI sometimes incorporates. Um, Some would argue always incorporates. Uh, If a human designs something, you're going to inherently bring with it whatever bias the human brings to the equation. And there are instances where machines pick up on bias that, that wasn't intended. So when humans talk about bias, they're often talking about uh, intentional bias that might come from stereotypes or, or things like that. Uh, and in, in the AI area, we those are certainly sorts of biases that might infiltrate into the system. But we're also talking about unintended bias for example, by the use of data uh, to train algorithms that is not strong data, that is not uh, representative data. Um, And this might occur, for example, um, in some of the, there's been some indication that some of the facial recognition algorithms are less effective uh, when applied against um, female faces than male faces, and likewise with respect to uh, white, uh, Caucasian male faces versus, uh, people of color. And it turns out that that's not, it could be a reflection of intended bias, but it turns out it, in, in many cases, is really a reflection of the type of data, um, that the algorithm was trained on. And if you train an algorithm on, uh, one type of face and you expect it to accurately predict and, and sort through and, uh, accurately, uh, choose between another sort of face, it's not going to be as accurate. Um, so I can give you some examples of that if you would like uh, to make the point clearer. Um, but again, it's the the human that chose the, uh, allowed the machine to be trained on a certain set of data and that kind of thing. Um, and there's some very uh, clear examples of how that might happen. Um, and then, um, Human-machine interface, back to the Centaur's dilemma. And this, I think this may uh, get at what you really were hoping I'd say when I talk about it with your question. I described uh, three scenarios in the book uh, involving human-machine interface and sometimes uh, some, of the er- some of the risks that comes with that and some of the errors that occur. And sometimes uh, the, the machine works exactly as intended, Uh, but the human doesn't understand what the machine has done and makes the wrong choice as a result of it. Uh, That, uh, in part, is the example that many people use and I use in the book, is the Vincennes incident uh, when the uh, U.S. cruiser Vincennes shot down an Iranian Airbus over the Persian Gulf in, in in the 1980s. And the complex Aegis radar system was tracking uh, the Iranian civilian airliner and was providing correct information uh, to the combat information center and the ship. And the humans misread the information, uh, partly based on perceptions about what they thought they should be seeing, uh, perceptions about their own uh, sense of place and where they were and what they expected to happen. Um, But the machine worked. Uh, There are other instances where the machine uh, worked, but the interface the pass off to the human uh, didn't work. So the humans took control of the situation, but weren't able to uh, do it properly. And here here we can use as a very uh, keen and tragic example. The um, the uh, Supermax, the Boeing Supermax, where the pilots um, in 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 the two airliners that crashed uh, the 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 uh, software was working it, it, but turned command of the the aircraft back over to the pilot who was not able to control at that time because they didn't understand what was happening. Uh, so that's an interface problem. And then uh, the third category is when the tech the, the technology does not work as intended. Um, now that can happen for a number of reasons it can happen because it doesn't work, right? It can happen because we don't understand the output and it can happen because someone has messed with the output. Uh, and one of the risks with AI is that you, an opponent, um, if we're talking about national security space, which is what I'm talking about with my book, uh, an opponent can spoof the, the AI application with either poison data or uh, in other ways or through penetration. Um, and the example of technology that didn't work as intended, uh, that many people and skeptics, AI skeptics often point to, um, is the case in uh, 1983 um, when Lieutenant Colonel Petrov, who was a uh, Soviet rocket force uh, uh, officer, uh, received an alert uh, that there was an American uh, launch launch First strike launch of nuclear weapons, um, and the uh, warning system was telling Petrov, who was the watch officer, that 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 these Americans had launched a first strike, and he was under, as one would imagine, under the directions and in the in the Soviet system, he was supposed to report that immediately up the chain of command uh, to the Politburo for for a command decision about how to respond. And Petrov, as I describe in the book, and it's not my story to tell, it's it's his story, uh, and and others have told it as well. But uh, Petrov uh, said to himself, uh, it didn't look like what he imagined a first strike to look like. And one of the chapters of the book is called Sitting on a Hot Frying Pan. He said, I felt like I was sitting on a hot frying pan while everybody was waiting for me to pass this up the chain of command, and I just wouldn't do it because I didn't think it was the, what it was, and it turned out it was a faulty technology, uh, it was a false alarm, and uh, and who knows what would have happened? But Petrov might well have saved uh, the world uh, and prevented a uh, in, un, you know a nuclear exchange. Unless you think, oh silly us, that's Soviet hardware. Who would trust Soviet hardware? Yeah. Uh, the situation occurred in nineteen seventy-nine. And there the actors were not the Soviets, but uh Zbigniew Brzezinski, the national security advisor to President Carter, who was awoken uh by his military assistant Bill Odom to tell him that there was a Soviet first strike headed toward the United States. And to make a uh longest longest story shorter, uh Zbigniew so Brzezinski wisely sat on it. He wanted confirmation, and, and twice—not once, but twice—he went back uh, to the DOD command center uh, to confirm that this was an actual first strike uh, and that they were reading the information correctly. And it turned out, again, uh, much like in the Petrov incident, that it had been a false alarm based on a, um, a an error. Uh, training tape had somehow made itself into uh, the the uh, watch system and because it had made itself into the watch system in two different places, it confirmed itself, which is a terrifying thought, right? It, 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 you always want to have fail safes, but, um, it confirmed itself in any event. Um, those are two sort of vivid examples that technology doesn't always work as intended. Right. It's like, it's like our version of the doomsday machine,
0: you know, it's so Dr. Strangelove.
1: It is, it is a little bit Dr. Strangelove. Now, some people, this is a little bit like, um, so there's going to be people listening who will say, Oh great. They're talking about Petrov and Brzezinski and singularity and super intelligence. Um, artificial intelligence is here. It's here to stay. It is very beneficial in many cases. It is a tool. It should augment human judgment. It should not replace human judgment. So uh, we can can dwell on the risks and we should be conscious of the risks, but we should also be conscious of the benefits and design a regulatory framework that is value-based that will allow us to reap the benefits of AI and mitigate, minimize, and hopefully eliminate many of the risks. Um, And depending on context, you might minimize risk uh, or eliminate risk by saying, don't do it. Uh, Don't do what? Well, you might not want to have artificial intelligence systems that operate at machine speed connected to nuclear command and control and warning. Right. That there are places where you might want to put in a red line where you'll say uh, human judgment um, must be exercised uh, and and break the machine speed chain. Um, And there are other times when um, you might uh, choose not to do that. But my point is, we want to make purposeful decisions, uh, which hopefully will lead to wiser decisions. And we need to start making them now, uh, not after uh, states like China, Russia, and the United States develop these systems fully because then they're not going to want to regulate something that they think they have an advantage in. Uh, much easier and better to do it on the front end uh, than after the fact. Um, Shoot. I'd like to make... Um, I'm, I'm here to respond to your questions, but I think a, a couple things that are important uh, to know about most artificial intelligence. And... In, um, one, it is both nimble and brittle, which seems a contradiction, uh, but but it is not, and I'll explain why. And it's also important to realize that it's a predictive tool. It's not. Um, I think we're we're sort of conditioned um, through through popular culture to view um, artificial intelligence as a sort of decision-making entity, a, a decisive decision-making entity. Rather than a predictive tool, um, and I'll give an example about that. And um, so let me let me tell you what I mean by predictive uh, in the area of facial recognition. Um, when we watch a movie like the the Born Identity or, or or you know any TV show when they're using facial recognition, um, they want to match uh, the face, and so they put the face in and. You know, they run through very rapidly, run through all these pictures on the screen and out pops Jason Bourne at a Berlin train station, right? A one for one match. And um, who knows whether we'll get there, but, he, but here's what is really happening with facial recognition. And I'm going to use the example of the FBI's facial recognition tool. Um, since 2011, the FBI according to the GAO, has logged more than 390,000 facial recognition searches of federal and local databases, including state DMV databases, with access to 641 million face photos. Okay, we'll talk about these in a second. The FBI has said its system is 86% accurate at finding the right person if a search is able to generate a list of 50 possible matches. So uh, here's what's going on, right? It's not put Jason Bourne's photo into the machine and they'll find Jason Bourne wherever he is in the world. Um, instead, let's put the, the half-shielded, half wear, hat-wearing picture of a bank robber who's caught on a CCTV camera and you stick that into the machine, into the algorithm, that's the input, and it goes through the process of the neural networks and and the machine, uh, the deep learning that is going on within the facial recognition system, and out comes the output. And the output could be maybe one picture, or it could be 50, or it could be 100. And what the FBI is saying is, when the output generation at least 50 possible matches in 86% of the times, one of those matches is a correct match. So what the algorithm is really doing, it's saying based on data points that you may not understand the algorithm is finding, the shape of the eyebrow, the shape of the nose, the number of um, the, the angle of the, uh, the eyebrow, Um, it has generated a list of 50 possible people that might match the input photo. And then the human has to go through and and say, gee, do any of these actually match? So what the algorithm has done is it's predicted. It's made a prediction. I predict uh, that one of these photos might match what you're doing. Um, Another example, a Google search. When you type in a Google search and you get the links back, it's not saying the answer to your question is this link. It's saying it's making a prediction that one of those links will answer your question. And sometimes it looks like it's answering the question um, because you type in who is George Washington and it comes back and the link is the first president of the United States. And you're like, that's amazing. It answers my question. No, it merely predicted based on other human behavior and prior searches that in more instances than not, that was going to answer the question. But your neighbor might be named George Washington. And if you're looking for your neighbor, that's not even going to come close, right? Uh, But the algorithm was predicting that that will answer your question. Um, So prediction is, it's important to understand that. And therefore it's important for humans when they use AI applications to understand what they're getting and what they're not getting. Um, And... Uh, so so nimble and brittle at the same time. By nimble we mean uh, AI, most AI, is very quick at discerning uh, gathering meaning from data from many sources at once in a way that a human could never do. Um, that's how driverless cars can drive because they're taking in all this data at once, processing and making predictions about what the car should do or not do and that sort of thing. Um, That's very nimble. Humans can't process that much data, no way, no how. But when they say it's brittle, that means if you throw something at the AI that it hasn't been trained on, it's going to falter. So if you train on, um, if you, uh, you train an algorithm To identify certain types of animals, let's say uh, uh, great cats in Africa, Um, and then you throw uh, something it's never seen before, a human can intuit, let's say you do that and then you show it a dog or or you show it a fur coat, Uh, a human will intuit that it's not a cat, Uh, and and most humans would be able to figure out that it's like a clothing object or or a dog. an AI algorithm will not do that, right? It will predict either it's a cat or it will, it will give you a, a false result because it's brittle. It hasn't been trained to identify that information or process it. There, there are solutions for this, um, but some people who, who are worried about AI, and, and perhaps rightfully so, um, are worried that uh, we won't anticipate all the circumstances where the brittle nature of AI uh, may come into play. Here's an example uh, and one that alarms some people, but um, it's not, uh, if, you, if you connect, uh, if you allow AI to make a, a targeting decision, a military targeting decision, um, can you possibly train the algorithm on all the pro- with data on all the possible scenarios you might encounter on the battlefield? Scenarios that might, um, de- that might inform how we distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. Um, and if the, if the algorithm has not been trained to di- distinguish uh, in, the, in the cultural context of the place and the time between combatants and non-combatants, uh, it might well get it wrong. Not because it's bad, not because it's evil, not because someone wants it to get it wrong, but because it's brittle and cannot recognize the change in circumstance. And of course, the opponent is going to know that and try to throw curveballs uh, at, at an algorithm like that. Um, good, back to you. One thing I might like, I'd like to give you an example, one or two examples of beneficial AI, because I think it's so easy to talk about bias and all the concerns we have about it. And we should know those concerns so that we can mitigate them and more wisely use the application. I want, I want AI to augment human decision and if it's augmenting human decision and the human is capable of understanding what the strengths and weaknesses of the AI are, uh, then then you're going to get a better human decision in the end. It's if the human doesn't understand that or if the AI is faulty and the human doesn't realize it's faulty, then you're going to get less beneficial or even uh, a poor outcome.
0: It seems pretty clear that artificial intelligence is going to and in many respects already has changed our lives and our economies and the way we do things in a really wide range of different ways but but your book is focused on the national security implications of of AI so i wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think the most important national security implications are and where you think there might be benefits uh, specific to national security related issues uh, stemming from artificial intelligence and its application.
1: In terms of national, so let's talk about um, uses, potential uses. Um, and uh, there are, uh, and here we are focused on national security. So if we if we remember that um, uh, A.I. is a constellation of technologies uh, that is particularly good at analyzing data and discerning patterns in data and doing so at machine speed. Um, where where are areas where that could be useful? And the answer is uh, intelligence, of course. Right. It's 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 a wonderful intelligence multiplier. And. Um, in terms of identifying anomalies, let's let's say you're trying to figure out who's engaged in illicit sanctions traffic, either uh, evading UN sanctions or US sanctions uh, through front companies. Um, AI algorithms can detect uh, an- anomalous patterns in bills of lading, cargo shipments, weight of cargo, all this data that a human couldn't possibly process or collect in real time, or by the time you did it, the vessel carrying the clandestine North Korean shipment will have already gotten from point A to B. Um, uh, so intelligence uh, collection analysis and so on is an obvious category where it could be used. It could also be, um, uh, has to be used wisely. Uh, military applications are abundant. And I think the here's an area where I'd like to remind our audience that while lawyers in particular, but, but, Many people would have the tendency to jump to the lethal autonomous weapon system debate or perhaps think about the use of AI to coordinate swarm technology, which is definitely out there and coming. Um, it's, AI is first manifesting itself, as it already is, in things like predictive maintenance, logistics, um, medical uh, research analysis and detection. Uh, which of course has both national security purposes and also uh, civilian purposes. Um, again, because of pattern detection and anomaly. now you also know from uh, reading popular uh, journals, as well as hopefully my book, uh, that AI systems have beaten grandmasters at chess, grandmasters at go, and in these various games. And uh, they've done that in part by predicting, by studying the past moves of players, but also predicting all the future moves at the same time, um, while they learn the game themselves and optimal ways to play the games. And that's an area where you can um, you can imagine that being used to try and predict how a opponent might behave in a particular circumstance as well. there was a recent uh, darpa uh, exercise that got a lot of attention and that involved a uh, algorithm that was designed to engage in an f16 dogfight and it was called alpha dogfight and it was a contest to see if a company which company could come up with an algorithm that could defeat a f16 master fighter pilot in air to air Combat, and it turned out in the in the context of the simulation that they ran that the uh, algorithm defeated the pilot uh, five out of five to zero five times, which means the pilot was shot down five times. Um, and this, uh, so different people can look at this and, and extract different lessons. And one lesson is. Well, that's certainly going to encourage the continued research into this area, isn't it? Um, and what what was going on? Well, one of the things that was going on was that the algorithm doesn't uh, experience fear, uh, doesn't experience fatigue, and was able to calculate uh, in a way that the human couldn't the absolute edge of the performance capability of the F-16. So it was cutting corners and doing Uh, taking actions that very skilled pilots know how to do, but it could do it right up to the edge of performance capability without cracking the aircraft up. So it gave it itself an advantage. It also had the advantage that in the end, it didn't mind if it got shot down, right? Uh, Because it was an algorithm. Um, Now, uh, critics also would then say, yeah, but there's certain things it couldn't do. Um, First of all, it was in a simulation, uh, it wasn't being spoofed. It wasn't dealing with certain aspects of combat, um, and it wasn't communicating with wingmen and, and other participants. And um, a lot of the things that pilots do aren't just flying the aircraft in 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 that in a dogfight, but also working with wingmen and with others uh, to coordinate attacks and so on. So there's there's certain things that the algorithm was not doing in the context of the dogfight. Um, Anyway, it's an interesting uh, indicator of, of what might be coming. Um, let's, let's look at one of the benefits, which is pattern recognition and see how that might apply to uh, medical stuff. And I'm gonna put the pandemic aside for the moment. Um, and Instead, uh, give I, I try to find examples that um, normal, normal people like me think can relate to. As I like to say, when I started looking at this topic I couldn't spell AI. And um, one of the things I want the audience to know is normal people uh, can understand artificial intelligence if you take the time. Um, And normal people need to understand artificial intelligence so we can step into this vacuum and start to regulate its use and regulate it wisely. In India, uh, there's 70 70 million people who have diabetes. I'm, I'm getting this from articles, and I give the citations in, in the book, um, and, uh, and yet there are only 11 ophthalmologists for every 1 million people. In other words, um, uh, in India, it's very hard to get an eye doctor's appointment, and uh, diabetic blindness is a very real problem. Uh, it's a very real problem for a- anywhere there's diabetes. Uh, but when you have 70 million people who are diabetic, there's, there's a, a high percentage Uh, or a certain uh, uh, absolute number, are going to get diabetic blindness. It also turns out that diabetic blindness is something that's easily treated if identified in an early stage. And one way you can identify it in an early stage and treat it is by looking at the pattern of the eye, Uh, by looking into the the eye and seeing a distinct pattern formation uh, that is an indication of the development of diabetic blindness. so a, when a company developed an uh, algorithm, an AI application, that can look at, uh, look at the eye and detect the pattern of the eye and match the pattern against a database in the United States of all prior pictures, some with diabetic blindness and some without, and indicate which of the eyes are most at risk of developing diabetic blindness. Then what do they do? they take the people who are most at risk and they make sure they're the ones who get to see the eye doctor, not not all the other people. But so this is a great example of the centaur at work, the machine helping the human make the right choice about which patients to prioritize. And there's a lot of different scenarios you can uh, use such an example for. So you can look through data Let's say you're going to um, put it back in the national security sphere. Uh, you're trying to determine uh, uh, which, I'm trying to be careful here, which, which thing to listen to uh, in real time, uh, which pictures to examine in real time. Or you have uh, 24 hours of straight um, video feed from a drone platform, a remotely piloted vehicle that's collecting video feed and the human is sitting there trying to watch 24 hours of video feed, nodding off, tired, um, they miss, may miss the key anomalous event in the video feed. And what the algorithm can do through pattern recognition is signal to you which is the five minutes in which a human does something or, or a pattern emerges in the slide that is anomalous to what you were looking for. And now you can have the human examine that. Um, and uh, so that's an example of a positive um, use of pattern recognition in this area.
0: In your book, you suggest that the nuclear arms race may offer helpful analogies or helpful frameworks for thinking about uh, national security policy in relation to artificial intelligence in the future. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on that and, and kind of talk about what kind of lessons you think we might be able to draw from those previous experiences. What
1: happens, so what, here's what happens when the law is not clear or uh, well, well drafted for what it's being used for. Um, so we'll stipulate uh, that the key national security law in, in this area, the National Security Act of 1947, as amended, uh, did not have AI in mind when it was passed originally in 1947, <laughs> nor the Communications Act of 1936, right? So as a general general matter, uh, the law does not keep up with technology. We already know this from the internet. We know this from any virtually any technology. Um, so we'll stipulate to that. So what happens when the law is not up to date? Uh, lawyers um, apply the law they have. Um, and uh, if it's, it might fit well, it might not fit well, but they're going to apply the law they have. And in this context, it's, it might be the Defense Production Act. It might be the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, but they are going to apply the law they have. Another thing that happens is it heightens the importance of constitutional law constitutional law always applies, even if there's a statutory framework that more specifically applies. And in the area of AI, we have the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the First Amendment. And the book goes through how each of the, uh, how constitutional law might apply to many of the different types of AI applications we're thinking about. What else happens? It heightens the importance of litigation as a vehicle for resolving Issues of law that might otherwise be resolved through the passage of legislation or through clear statements of law. And litigation is a horrible way to make national policy and national security policy because it accents the values and the interests of the specific parties, not society as a whole. Um, And in the book, I give the example of FBI San Bernardino 2015 incident with the debate over whether to be able to access the iPhone. Um, I don't want FBI making national policy in this area any more than I want Apple. I want the U.S. process, the constitutive process, the congressional process, the national, the executive branch uh, writ large to have input on these decisions. The other thing that happens is lawyers look for analogy. They look to apply law by analogy. Um, So. What I thought to do, since there isn't a clear body of law that applies to artificial intelligence in the national security space, is ask, where can we look for law that might apply by analogy that we might adopt and adapt to the AI field? And so that's what led me to um, the world of arms control and nuclear command and control, and also the law of armed conflict. And there are certain principles that we can extract from those areas uh, some of which might apply, and some of which might not. Uh, so one needs to be very careful to say AI is not a weapon. It's not a nuclear weapon. AI is like electricity. It's it's a it's a it's a conceptual thing that applies to many different areas. Um, but the reason I looked at um, arms control, and not just nuclear arms control, but uh, as importantly, if perhaps not more importantly. Uh, the Chemical Weapons Convention and the Biological Weapons Convention is because Chemical Weapons Convention addresses a dual-use item uh, like AI, right? AI can be used for security purposes or it can be used for civilian purposes, just like chemical weapons. And the Chemical Weapons Convention it turns out to be a uh, convention that actually has a fairly effective verification regime for something that is a dual-use item. And so... Um, I extrapolate from both the nuclear arms control regime, the chemical weapons weapons uh, convention regime, and to a lesser extent, the biological agent uh, regime, um, some of the concepts that we might think to apply uh, to regulating artificial intelligence, such as uh, confidence building measures. What sorts of measures might China, uh, the U.S. and Russia engage in to build confidence between the parties uh, that they will not use AI uh, for malign purposes or um, for first strike purposes, for example? And um, I think it was worth going through that because I find in the current generation of students, uh, you may find this as well, uh, they're not well versed in uh, the, the law and the policy issues uh, that came along with the Cold War and the arms race at the time. And some of these lessons need to be applied uh, to AI and some need to not be applied. So two lessons that you might want to apply. One is doctrine. Uh, We don't have a doctrine yet uh, for how we might use artificial intelligence in the national security space. Um, We didn't have doctrine at the outset of the nuclear age either uh, after the... uh, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we we started to develop a Cold War doctrine uh, that eventually morphed into mutual assured destruction. But if you look back at the history of what the doctrine was um, until the 1960s, it was pretty horrific. It incorporated concepts of first strike um, and it was not proportional and, and it uh, in many ways was not necessary either. Um, and the point there is not to critique... Uh, Cold War doctrine, which is for somebody else to do, but to note that you don't always get your doctrine right at the outset. And the sooner we start thinking through doctrine, uh, the more stable and better off we're likely to be. Doctrine, for example, that might address when humans will control certain uses of AI and when they might not at the point of use, as opposed to the point of design. Um, Law of armed conflict. These are all just examples drawn from the book. The law of armed conflict gives us the concept of command responsibility. And in the law of armed conflict, the commander is responsible for everything his unit does or doesn't do, or that he had reason to know about and failed to stop. And so when people say, well, who are we going to hold accountable? Should we hold the designer accountable, the software engineer, the person who uses the AI? Uh, my response is, well, let's look to the law of armed conflict. The commander's responsible, uh, whether he's directly done something or not. Um, why not hold, why not figure out who's the commander in the context of a particular AI application and hold them accountable and not worry about who designed the thing, who built the hardware, who did this? The commander, you used it, Mr. President, you own it. Um, you used it, Mr. Director of National Intelligence, you own it. Uh, you're responsible. And, and with that responsibility and accountability will come a desire to go back and figure out how the thing was designed and whether it actually works. Because when you have responsibility, all of a sudden you start to worry about things like that. But when responsibility is diffuse, that's somebody else's problem, right? I'm sure it works well. I can't imagine the software engineer made a mistake, right? But when you own it, when you're the responsible party, you're going to go back and check.
0: In closing, I wonder if there are particular concerns or key takeaways that you would suggest that policymakers thinking about artificial intelligence in a national security context ought to be keeping in mind, ought to be focusing on, ought to be reflecting on when they're making these kinds of decisions? In other words, when they're taking ownership, what kind of questions should they be asking?
1: Two two immediate takeaways. One, I'm living proof that a normal person uh, can, you may think I have figured out AI or not, or, or have good policy proposals and legal proposals or not, But a a normal lawyer, a normal policymaker can understand uh, AI and its implications if you take the time to study it. And um, you do not have to be a technologist. And so my first message is generalists, whether you're a generalist in the area of business and want to master e-commerce or a generalist in the area of transportation and want to understand what's coming down the road in terms of driverless cars and more likely and sooner driverless trucks, I think logistics again, um, or uh, uh, delivery packages uh, from drones. If you want to know what's coming down the pike, it's incumbent on us now as generalists to understand and, and master this area. So that's point one, normal people can do it. Uh, Point two, the law has not kept pace. Regulation has not kept pace. So we've seen some development of ethical principles. And there are those who will say, well, we don't need new law. The law is just fine. Um, It may be, but we need to start looking at how that law applies to specific applications. Uh, And and then I'll tell you if it's just fine. Um, I'm not confident that's happened yet. Um, so that's point two, is time to apply law and ethics to real world examples and make the adjustments we need. One thing we should always look for is the human in the loop. That's, that's a term of art uh, in this thing, and it's, it's a cute term of art. Um, it doesn't really answer the question, right? You can say there should always be a human in the loop, and that doesn't really tell you anything. Uh, what I'm saying is find where the person actually is. Where is the place in the AI constellation where the human actually influenced the outcome in the design of the software and writing the code in determining where it would be used and by whom? Find the human and that will help you understand uh, what the key factors are that are being used um, and how the centaur's dilemma is being resolved as between what part is going to be human control and decision and what part is going to be machine control, and decision. Um, boy, I have a long checklist here. I'm trying to uh, uh, spare you the 47 takeaway points because that's not much of a summary here. Um, the uh, We are at a fork in the road. I call this the Robert Frost principle, which is we, we're at a, a fork in the road and it may be that we take the road less traveled by, or not, but we need to pick a road. Like, let's get on a road here uh, and control our own destiny. And we can control our own destiny uh, by getting into this debate, understanding it. What I'd like to see a lot more of, uh, we talk about uh, stakeholders. I would like to see a lot more interchange between government, industry, and academia. Uh, sometimes hard to do. Uh, I think the current administration... Uh, shows great promise in this area and who they've brought on into the administration so far. But uh, This is this is a, tr- uh, a three-part exercise, not a one-part exercise. It's not driven by the government. It's not just driven by industry. It's not just academic. It's all of them working together to devise an ethical and legal framework for addressing AI um, and its different applications. So, uh that's something I would encourage. And then I would encourage your, your, the, the law professor side, time to start teaching students of tomorrow what they need to know for the 21st century. And we're still teaching to the turn of the last century, not, not 20th to 21st, but 19th to 20th. Uh, we need to start teaching for the 21st century. And the students uh, of the 21st century will need to know emerging technologies. They'll need to know AI if they're going to succeed uh, to their potential in the century ahead. So time for law schools to start teaching artificial intelligence um, and giving a comfort level to tomorrow's lawyers and practitioners uh, in this very important area. Thank you, Jamie, for coming on the show. It was so great uh, reading your book and talking
0: to you about it. I learned a lot, and I hope that listeners will check it out because there's way more in the book than we were able to touch on in this conversation. Thank you, Brian.
2: Enjoy yourself it's later than you think enjoy yourself while you're still in the pink the years go by as quickly as a wink enjoy yourself enjoy yourself it's later than you think you work and work for years and years you're always on the go you never take a minute off Too busy making dough. Someday you say you'll have your fun when you're a millionaire. Imagine all the fun you'll have in your old rocking chair. Enjoy yourself, it's later than you think. Enjoy yourself, while you're still in the pink. The years go by as quickly as a wink. Enjoy yourself, enjoy yourself, it's later than you think. Your heart of hearts, your dream of dreams, your ravishing brunette. She's left you and she's now become somebody else's pet. Lay down that gun, don't try my friend, to reach the great beyond. You'll have more fun by reaching for a redhead or a blonde. Enjoy yourself! It's later than you think. Enjoy yourself! While you're still in the pink. The years go by as quickly as a wink. Enjoy yourself, be happy! It's later than you think. Arriba! Arriba! You worry when the weather's cold, you worry when it's hot. You worry when Ooh. you're doing well, you worry when you're not. Worry, worry, all the time you don't know how to laugh. They'll think of something funny when they write your epitaph. So enjoy yourself, it's later than you think. Enjoy yourself while you're still in the pink. Or the year she go by, as quickly as a wink. Enjoy yourself, enjoy yourself, it's later than you think. You never go to nightclubs and you just don't care to dance. You don't have time for silly things like moonlight and romance. You only think of dollar bills tied neatly in a sack. But when you kiss a dollar bill, it doesn't kiss you back. Enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. Enjoy yourself while you're still in the pink. All the years go by as quickly as a wink. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. It's It's much, 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 much much, much later than you think. Enjoy yourself. Make whoopee. Buy her a coat. Take her to a nightclub. Borrow money. Not for me. I want to enjoy myself, too. I have fun. Yeah. Whoopee!